Canucks Central Friday. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw with you. Yes, a mailbag Friday. If you haven't gotten your questions in yet, get them in as you can. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Big Vancouver Canadians win with the Nooner at the Nat here on your home of the Canadians. But we're going to get into a lot of the Canucks chatter from here on out. Yannick Hansen will be joining us. Greg Wyshynski, the mailbag, your questions for us here on Canucks Central as well to come through the course of the program. If you're listening live, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line and on demand, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever it is you prefer, subscribe and leave a review. We are presented by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. It's funny, Sat. Um... Bruce Boudreau did uh, the exclusive interview with us earlier this week. And uh, since then, he can't stop doing interviews. <laughs> he's been making the rounds. We know he's uh, a guy who's buddies with a lot of the media and uh, has been, has worked in the media, obviously, uh, with NHL Network and different spots. And he's a fun-loving guy, mm-hmm. right? You know, you can just tell by his demeanor and his always positive attitude. But... Uh, the latest stop was the Bob McCowan podcast, uh, whom he's been a guest on uh, Bobcat's show basically for forever, yeah. like even going back to his Washington Capitals head coaching days. Well, they've been buddies. You could tell by the end of the interview. Yeah. It was like, hey, can't wait, wait to get together, guys, yes. in a long time. Let's go <laughs> golfing together. So they're obviously good friends. And, you know, it was an extensive interview. It was like a good, like, you know, 35, 40 minutes of Boudreaux being very relaxed with friends, talking about being the head coach of the Canucks and all the things that have kind of happened. So it was it was pretty revealing. You, yeah. you can tell when guys are comfortable with people they know, and it's a longer form situation where you can sit down for a while. You see how things can get flowing, especially with a guy like Boudreau, who is pretty honest. It's yeah. just in the settings we usually get to talk to him, it's, yep. it's not quite as comfortable. No, but we did learn something. Yes. About the Vancouver Canucks today. Uh, Scott Walker has retired, as Bruce Boudreaux put it, and will be stepping away from the Canucks bench. He came in with Boudreaux in December when Boudreaux was hired and had some battles with Vertigo, spent some time away from the bench, did come back before the end of the season, but will not be returning for next season with the Vancouver Canucks, as Boudreaux put it. They are currently looking for a replacement. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure that was supposed to come out in that way. Right. Like <laughs> I mean, hey, listen, I, I can't speak to it with authority, but uh, my guess is Boudreaux wasn't supposed to leak that, or yeah. that was supposed to not be announced by Boudreaux, but hey, who Just knows? a little too quick on the trigger <laughs> there from Bruce? Right. I, I would think, uh, I believe, I would say actually, but regardless, whatever, it's not a big deal. We're talking about an assistant, and you know, he kind of goes into the fact they need another one and they're going to hire somebody else. And that does not mean the evaluation is over yet. Right. Um, I don't know if all the assistant coaches are coming back or not. I don't know if it's been determined yet, but that's where this discussion, I think, would go. I think if the the natural follow would be, so what about the other guys? Yeah. And one of the reasons um, I think this wasn't supposed to come out is I'm not sure the overall process is over yet. So you don't want to hear, like, one by one coming out potentially. Well, we've heard it a lot, whether it's from Boudreaux or uh, Jim Rutherford. The evaluation period is still ongoing, and that falls in line 
with uh, what you're saying right now, Sat. So w- when you think about it, you know, he has spoken glowingly about Bradshaw. Yes. And the job that he's done with the penalty kill. Um, I believe Bradshaw has one year remaining on his contract after coming over last summer. We'll see how that works. But, you know, that's essentially you know, what part of the, the, the big part of the assistance job, right? Yeah. They, one will take over the penalty kill, one will take over the power play, handle the forwards, handle the defense. Um, Jason King was doing that with the power play this year. Took some time, but it figured itself out by the end of the season. And obviously, Brad Shaw, defensively, Boudreaux thinks it was working pretty good. And uh, the PK obviously took a big step as the season went on. Well, if you look at what Brad Shaw has been able to do, I, I would not... I would assume nothing really changes yeah. in his regard as far as if he comes back. Like, if yeah. he's back, he does the same thing. Runs a PK, works as a defenseman, overall helps out the head coach. It was kind of surprising when they brought him in and he wasn't doing those things. Yeah, it was he, It was interesting. We had him on and he was talking to him. He, he said a lot of wonderful things. It was really revealing. It was a great discussion. But his role was not defined at all. It was very much, I'll do a little bit of this, I'll do a little yeah. bit of that, and we'll see what kind of happens. Yep. He was just like a, another... He's just a bench coach, yeah. I guess, you know? Yeah. And which is not... Kind of like in baseball where they have the first base guy, the third base guy, there's a bench coach, and then there's obviously the manager. Yeah, and, and, and I think without really being behind the scenes extensively, it's hard to say whether he was underutilized or not. Yeah. But I'd say that it was a probably oversight not having him run the PK initially. Yeah. Obamer really struggled. Yeah. Uh, and because the PK did the same thing they've done for years, which is kind of just be passive. Yep. And uh, we've seen, I think Bomber was coaching the uh, the U18s. And yeah. They, they really struggled on the PK there too. Uh, so it, like it doesn't all come down to coaching, of course. So a lot of it is personnel. But just a, a simple mindset tweak of being more aggressive um, mm-hmm. when Bradshaw took over. Some of that was, hey, we're going to use some of our best players on the penalty kill. Elias Pettersson really thrived in that role. I thought Bo Horvat, for the first time in his career, really took to a penalty-killing role uh, this season. And maybe it helped that he was playing with Pettersson most of the time, and they really worked together. They seemed to have some chemistry there on the PK. But it, it really was a mindset of, we are no longer going to be passive on the PK. We want to be more aggressive. Um, the interesting one is is Jason King uh, because I think, obviously... Uh, well, just to add one thing. Yep. As far as how good the PK was under Boudreaux in general, they were 11th in the league from the time Boudreaux took over to the end of the season. Yeah. And most of that jump happened late in the year when Bradshaw took over. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, at the end of the year, like, Demko was obviously a big part of it, but Demko was making saves earlier in the season, too, and they were still the worst PK in the league. A big part of it was Pedersen and Hughes. Yeah. That was a huge part of it. Um, yeah, I guess Brad Richardson is a really strong PK player, too, and, you know, swapping Mott out for him lessened the blow of, of losing a Tyler Mott, but... You got a centerman, at least. Yep. Another guy who could take a face-off there on the PK. Look, personnel-wise, it, it didn't change a ton. You know, they, they put Pedersen there and, and, and Quinn Hughes, and that, that really changed a lot of it. But 
11th in the league from dead last for most of the year. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, historically bad penalty kill yes. through the first 25 games of the season. It probably lost them single-handedly five well, to cost, seven games. Probably cost, the cost them the playoffs. Yeah. The if you PK want, in the early part of the season cost them the playoffs. The early part of the season was the overall thing, but if you want to identify one specific area of your game that costs you dearly more yeah. than anything else, it was the PK this season. Especially when they couldn't score yeah. very early in the season. Um, that was uh, that was tough to overcome. What did you think of the power play this year? So, I haven't been satisfied with the Canucks power play for a while, despite the fact they have been pretty efficient. And yeah. even even under um, uh, Travis, they weren't bad. They were just average. They were like 15th in the league, 16th in the league. They were good enough to always kind of be in that 19-20% range. 18-20% to 20% efficiency. But ever since Boudreaux took over, again, you, we look at that 57-game stretch, Yeah, the Canucks PK was fourth, and the power play was fourth in the National Hockey League at 24.2%. Yeah. So how much of that was Jason King and the team getting better and what they're doing together having success? How much of that was tweaks that Boudreaux initiated and other people behind the scenes may have initiated? But if we assume... And I think yeah. it's fair to assume that the guy running the power play had a big part in the power play having success, or at least worked well with people, that is he as problematic as people make him out to be, Jason King? If he had a big part in the fact that they had the fourth best power play in fifty-seven in, in that 57-game stretch under Boudreaux. Now, hey, that doesn't mean that you can apply that and, and forgive the first part of the season, but for a guy who's learning and a young guy who's learning as a NHL power play coach? Yeah. What wrinkles did they introduce, though? I mean... They, like to me, I look back on the power play and a lot of the ways they had success is ways we saw them have success in the past. The pass into the bumper to Horvat, the one timer to Pedersen, Miller when he's getting the shot available yeah. to him because you know they're trying too much or they're cheating too much towards Pedersen's one timer. He takes the shot and is able to beat goalie short side. Uh, you, you have Besser or Chase on banging a few from the front of the net. Like it's not like they introduced anything dramatic to change the fortunes of the power play. Not dramatically, no. There were some tweaks, and I'd say the maybe the two most notable ones I can think of right now, one was on the entries, Elias Pettersson right. taking a lot more of the pucks into the zone instead of dropping it to like Bo or somebody else. It was Pettersson had a lot more opportunities to enter the zone of the power play, which I think is the right guy to do it with because yeah. I think him and Hughes are the two guys you really want to have the puck. And I think they made a bigger effort to get JT the puck a bit lower on the power play, and he would just kind of dance through guys and get entries. So those are the type of things I noticed a bit on the entries. And I noticed just on Pedersen himself on the power play, he was looking to shoot. He he encroached to get his wrister off more than just a one-timer. He was a bit more engaged than he would, would normally be. He was he was less stationary and less predictable. It's... um. I now, think, is that tweaks, or is that just Pedersen taking it on to himself? Right. I mean, there's there's so much of this season that you can be like, well, like when Pedersen started to play good, things started to go better. It's, it's amazing how it works. It's, it's one of the things that Boudreaux kind of mentioned in the interview. He's like, when, he, when talking about the zone exits and stuff, he's like, I look at those sort of things, but I look at the playoffs, and I just kind of say the teams that are good are the teams that have the best players. Yes. It's kind of how it works. The teams that are good at those things have the best players. That's yeah. how it works. Uh, even though he wasn't uh, so... Um, he was okay with his roster when he spoke with us the other day. Yeah. Um, and, and hey, like every power play in the league, how many different wrinkles can they pose? It's, and it doesn't just come down to talent, as I think some people 
believe. Like, look at the Florida Panthers, right? Yeah. Like, they're like 0 for 1,000 right now in the playoffs on uh, on the power play. And despite having all the talent in the world, they can't seem to figure it out. They add Claude Giroux, who's been one of the mm-hmm. better power play players in the league for the last 10, 12 years, right? More than that. Um, all of these things are true. It doesn't. It's not just about talent, but... You know, I remember, and this was still when Travis was around, it was that that early season win against Dallas, and the Canucks' offense kind of broke out a little bit. They scored five or six that night, and I think three three of the goals came on the power play. Pedersen had a multi-point night and was like, is this the moment Pedersen is is going to start to break out? Is the slump over sort of thing? Mm -hmm. And it didn't turn out to be. But that night, I remember... Miller talking after the game and he just said like we just kind of like got together and said guys what are we doing like we know yeah. we're better than this well, especially on the power play like let's let's just get back to what we know we're good at and I think sometimes that's where like it gets overthought I think the best thing about a PK coach I mean power play coach is what type of tweaks can you introduce when things get stale to freshen things up right that's essentially what it comes down to because what a lot of what you mentioned is kind of true and as far as who they bring in I'd say the guy they bring in really depends on what they do with Jason King, obviously, and we'll see with Bradshaw. I would assume Bradshaw comes back because why would you pay a guy not to coach when he has a contract for next season anyways and he has success and is a good good guy? So it yeah. doesn't add up. So I, I would assume just by the, just apply logic to the yeah. Bradshaw situation. Don't, don't even need to report on it. I mean, it. unless he gets a head coaching look somewhere, which uh, he has been mentioned a couple of times as somebody that could be on the radar. Yeah. Now, if that happens, yeah. different discussion, obviously, right? But it would kind of be Boudreaux's call as well. Scott Stevens is a guy who's been mentioned in the past. Is that somebody that would, would be willing to come get back to the coaching game again and, and come back and yeah. work with Boudreaux? Is that somebody you bring in? Somebody that he trusts that's his next guy. That's the guy that, as he kind of said with Scott Walker, which was interesting, he mentioned he's a guy that he would send to talk to players. Because when he's coaching the game, he's like, hey, I need you to tell this guy something. You're the one that goes and does it. So you're kind of the right-hand man for the coach. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what he's probably looking to Higher as his one higher. Uh, a couple questions on this, minor Matt. Uh, I wish the Canucks would scrap the damn drop pass <laughs> on the zone entry. They suck at it, and it's so overplayed. Every team uses the drop pass, and it's just kind of become part part of how do you get zone entries. And the Canucks are just fine with it. Generally. Yeah, I mean, it's they're fine even relative to other teams. It's annoying. I get it, but everyone uses it. I, <laughs> it's funny when Newell Brown was replaced. People are like, oh, the, the drop pass is, is finally gone. It's like, oh, no. What? <laughs> Have you ever watched any other team in the league? Do you watch, watch the playoffs. Do you watch when, like, the Canucks are playing and their opponent gets a power play and they all have the drop pass going? Yeah. Or do you just, like, not... Not notice that. Well, and I think, you know what it is, though? The Canucks are the team that use the draw pass, that, that really revolutionized the draw pass across yes. the league. It was with the Sedins, and it was Newell Brown who kind of introduced yes. the two. So in Vancouver, we've seen the draw pass for like 15 years. Yes. We're tired of watching <laughs> the draw pass. We were ahead of the curve on the draw pass, so I think that's part of it. It's amazing how good it looks with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Right? I, I, or when McDavid collects the drop pass and <laughs> yeah. looks like he's about to just murder everybody in his sight. Yes. The most important thing is getting the right guy, dropping the puck to the right guy. That's what yes. it comes down to more than anything. Yes. Uh, it's all about creating speed through the neutral zone. Yeah. Like, you see, like watch uh, Edmonton tonight, right? Uh, McDavid will do a loop around his own net, and Dreisaitl will drop the pass to him, 
and he's going full yeah. steam ahead into the offensive zone. Donnie Goodrow will get a couple of tonight. Sebastian will get a few for the Rangers. Oh, Terry Panera, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. For it, Carolina Mint. Like, rinse, repeat. Every team in the league is doing it, probably with their best player to gain that zone on the power play as clean as they possibly yeah. can. Well, and, and that's just part of it. I think the biggest changes that happened, obviously, were Boudreaux initiated. Yeah. Really? When well, I mean, that's what he said himself as far as what they did on 5-on-5 five five specifically. So this was interesting. Uh, I want to play this. Uh, Boudreaux on the uh, Bob McCallan podcast. So essentially, Bobcat asks him, like, uh, so, so what do you do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, when you're taking over a team, what, what do you do? What do you change? And, uh, well, he kind of went more into detail than he ever has on some of the things he did to, uh, bring new ideas to the Vancouver Canucks. Well, the first thing we changed everything in the defensive zone. And, uh, um, I mean, uh, they, they were saying that they did this and that. And I go, wow, I mean, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to protect the middle of the ice. And, and we did everything. Uh, we practiced a lot in our defensive zone. The next thing I did was, uh, but within the first couple of days is change the neutral zone um, to a one, one, three um, and uh, did that. And then the four check was let's, we weren't sending one man in. We were going to create opportunities and we were going to four check like hell and, and and all of a sudden they started scoring goals and this was they everybody loves scoring goals and mm-hmm. and uh uh with our aggressiveness they really liked it with the d going down the boards the main thing i wanted was responsibility of that f3 he couldn't get uh trapped where there was odd man rushes all the time so we were really all three zones we were we changed everything to be aggressive and to go after these guys and play to win and not play, not to lose. Play to win and not play, not to lose. I, You know, that, I think, was resonated through the market. Yeah. Like, it wasn't hard to tell that the Canucks played a little bit more aggressive as the second Boudreaux showed up. Absolutely. You saw it with the forecheck, how much deeper they were going. Yeah. We saw how how much higher the Canucks were playing Um under Travis, and we yeah. talked about how they're not really aggressive. They're not giving up a ton, but they're not generating anything. Yeah, they couldn't generate chances to save their lives early in the season. And yeah, team may have been better defensively, uh, but <sighs> wasn't great. No. And speaking of defensively, that was <laughs> kind of the money clip there from <laughs> Bruce Boudreaux. They told me what we were doing in the defensive zone, and I go, oh, wow. <laughs> we're not going to do that. <laughs> The oh wow just kills me. Oh wow. Yeah, we're definitely not doing that. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> I I kind of get it like okay, the Canucks weren't and and even under Boudreaux, they weren't exactly the picture of great defense, right? Uh they were top 5 defensively. How yeah. much of that came down to the goalie is up for debate depending on whether you're asking Bruce Boudreaux or Jim Rutherford, but it's um like what? What changed so much in the defensive zone that had Boudreaux going? Oh wow! I I mean it's it's I I don't I'm, I'm I don't know. My guess would be part of it, at least one part, maybe a very small part of it. But the Canucks, at least um, a bit earlier on, before Boudreaux came in, remember how many off uh, defensive zone turnovers they had? 
Yeah. And especially blind back passes from the half wall to the middle of the ice. Right. I think that play is something they wanted to do, which was have the forward be a bit deeper down, which helps you with your exits and supports your defenseman. The winger, yeah. The, the winger would do that, and he helps your defenseman, and you're able to kind of get the puck to the middle to either your center going up with speed or press, or the defenseman going up with speed and getting the puck out of your own zone, but you have support and you kind of go up with, with a group. But That's, they can never time it. They would not time it, and they would throw a lot of blind passes. Just just think back to how many defensive zone turnovers they had. Yeah. And that really was far more limited when Boudreaux took over. JT still had his moments. Yeah. But outside of that, you never saw that play anymore. And Boudreaux said, you know, we're just going to take away the middle of the ice. (laughs) How about we don't give the opponent east-west passes? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) There it is. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. We're just, we're we're taking away the middle of the ice. And, um, you know, it's... It's a fascinating concept. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bold. That's a bold. It's move uh, on. It's we'll ba- see this works out. It's kind of back to basics, but wow, you know, <laughs> when you when you come in mid season as a coach, you got to simplify things as much yeah. as possible. And and Boudreaux talked about this. We just we needed to get results right away, and it was huge that we did mm-hmm. because that immediately creates some buy in and belief that things are going well, are working out, and ultimately, if you are a head coach, how do you get the most buy-in from your team? You get results. And yeah. the Canucks did that very early on in the season. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Um Matt Lee of BCLC is now joining us as we take a look at some of the Stanley Cup playoff action about to go down tonight. But Matt, first, I don't mean to brag or anything. Okay, of course I mean to brag. I had St. Louis last night over at playnow.com. We called it on the show here yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are the boldest of the bold going after the St. Louis Blues against the juggernaut Colorado Avalanche. But it worked out all right for us, man. Yeah, I think so. And both of you have sort of mentioned that you had liked the Blues more than the consensus. And BC betters were right there with you guys. I mean, pre-series, the Blues were getting a lot of the action to win the best of seven at some juicy 5.75 odds. And last night, kind of the bend but don't break type of effort that they're going to need to replicate if they're going to steal this series. And despite the win, though, the Blues are still 3.30 underdogs to win. But the Mountain not looking as steep as it did before the series started, that's for sure. Well, yeah, and one of the things that I find really fun about the St. Louis Blues team, Matt, is the fact they can score a lot of goals. And when you can score a lot of goals, that makes for a lot of intriguing anytime bets. And I think that's a fun kind of part of this Blues team. Yes, they're defensive. Yes, they play hard. But, man, they can score a lot of goals. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you look at guys like David Perron, Ryan O'Reilly, Braden Shen. These are all guys that were part of that Blues team that won the Cup before. These guys have been there before. And, you know, experience does count for something. I mean, some people sort of overrate, like say uh, that experience is overrated. But quite frankly, the Blues have climbed the mountain before the Avalanche have not. I know that the Avalanche are the heavy favorite here, but the experience definitely has to count for something when it comes to a best of seven. When I'm looking at the outright odds right now, Matt, I'm like, okay, to me, this is Project Fade the Avalanche <laughs> yeah. because they are such a heavy favorite. They're not, they're not even getting a ton of juice as the outright winner. And I mean, I know they look they look like a juggernaut, but uh, you know, even Tampa Bay is is lagging behind as uh, as the next best as an outright uh, champion this year. 
Yeah, and even just looking at the series, I think most betters sort of suspected that it would be a big, uh, it would be a long series between St. Louis and Colorado going in. More than half of them expected it to go six games or more. So everyone knows that the Blues are not an easy out for the Colorado Avalanche, and really the value isn't quite there if you're betting on the Avalanche on the outright. No, no, no doubt about that at all. Now, kind of turning our sights to uh, games that are happening this evening and coming up uh, at five is the Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes. And man, the Rangers, they almost had game one on the road, a crushing defeat in overtime after having the lead. What are the odds telling us about about this game coming up? Yeah, it's going to be a tough mountain to climb for the New York Rangers. We knew that they were being tough against the Carolina team. That seems to be hitting the stride, despite the fact that they're rolling with anti Ranta and goal. Carolina is currently 1.57 on the money line. The Rangers 2.45. I know this game is being played in North Carolina, so it should be a tough one for the New York Rangers. But if they can come away with the split here, you never know what it will be like going back to Madison Square Garden. Yeah, the Rangers are uh, are, are fascinating right now to see if they can uh, pull off the upset. I don't know if I love the matchup for them against the Canes, but the matchup everybody is really in love with is the Battle of Alberta. How do we look at the Battle of Alberta here, Matt? I know a lot of people are looking at that game one and saying, unless McDavid goes superhuman, how is Edmonton going to win this series? Yeah, I mean, guys, I'm not sure who's losing more sleep these days, me with a five-week-old newborn or the Oilers fans <laughs> who are watching the Jekyll and Hyde goaltending from Mike Smith this playoffs. I mean, which version of him is going to show up between the pipes for the Oilers tonight? This is the guy who had two shutouts in the L.A. series. And this is also the same guy who got lit up for three goals in the opening minutes of game one. You know, I mean, you look at the Battle of Alberta, it was kind of a crazy round one between these two clubs. But Calgary's the favorite and the money line right now, 1.55, the other 2.5. Connor McDavid, I mean, I think Daryl Sutter said it best. If he can score four points every game, sure, the, the Flames are going to be in tough. But it's going to be tough for the for even Connor McDavid to yeah. put up four against the stingy Calgary team. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, I know the over hit in a big way in game in uh, in game one, and usually what happens the next game becomes quite a low scoring. What's the over under for goals in this game? Yeah, I thought you would ask me about the over under on this one. Of course, it hit fifteen last <laughs> game, so I'm, I, the line is not obviously set in double digits right now, but it is set at six and a half goals. I mean, it could be either a brilliant bet or it could be one that you're really feeling like, what the heck was I thinking? So yeah, the over is set, or the over under rather set at six and a half uh, could be some value either way, really, depending on how you're looking at it. Hey, Matt, appreciate the time as always. Congrats again on the uh, newborn, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, guys. See ya. Uh, there is Matt Lee of BCLC. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Uh, everybody's favorite Friday segment is coming up, the mailbag, but also everybody's favorite Friday analyst, Yannick Hansen, is joining us next here on Sportsnet 650. Canuck Central, we are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. The... Uh, Battle of Florida game last night was kind of fascinating, Sat. I want to know. Okay, and everybody's pointing at Mackenzie Weger. I can't point at one guy only on that final second goal by oh. Ross Colton. Literally, all five Florida players are staring at the puck. I don't know what they're, they're like doing. They're like waiting for the time to run out. They're just like waiting for the buzzer. It's like, 
Do you not sense danger when Nikita Kucherov <laughs> has the puck in the offensive zone? I, I think they probably didn't realize how much time was still left. Yeah. You know, maybe they thought it was like a second or two or whatever is going to run out. I mean, it was a good like five or six seconds at that point. You know, all three forwards were like just inside the blue line, just staring, just staring watching I mean, the play develop in slow motion. Well, they weren't <laughs> expecting that mistake to happen either. And yeah. I think they were just kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, they just they, they totally relaxed and let down their guard and thought yeah. time's going to run out. And they paid for it in a big way, man. At, yeah, Uyghur should definitely cover the front of the net, but um, at the same time, like. Man, Nikita Kucherov is really, really good at hockey. Uh, joining us now was also really, really good at hockey and is still really, really good at hockey. It's uh, Yannick Hansen, our Friday analyst. He joins us weekly here on Canuck Central, and he is a presentation of Magnuson Ford Auto Group. Thanks for this, Yannick. What's up? Not too much. Not too much. And, yeah, it's always a pleasure. Um, so... Okay, uh, did you did you see the play last night with with Kucherov? Uh, you know, making the behind the back pass out to Ross Colton. Like, um, is Florida just like? Did they just completely shut off there, hoping that the buzzer was going to hit? It's like one of those deer in the headlights. You, you see him behind the net, and you're like, "Oh, I got to get to him as soon as I can." And then the two Ds aren't communicating because uh, obviously one guy got to stay in front and mm-hmm. cover the guy. Um, and they don't, and they both go, and that's exactly what he wants, obviously, and then he throws a pass, uh, and, yeah, the game's over. It's one of those things where you have to, uh, yeah, you have to pull yourself back a little bit, and then again, we always say head on a swivel, because um, yeah. obviously he's not going to hurt you there. He's not going to score from back there. Um, I don't know if he has the Michigan in his uh, toolkit. Um, I don't think I've seen it, uh, but, uh, again, I don't think he's going to score from back there. Um, so again, make sure you in front of the net instead. Well, and as far as what the Panthers do now, I mean, they're a really good hockey team, obviously, but you lose the first two games at home and the second one you lose, you lose like that late. I mean, how do you recover from that? Can they, you think? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a very tough one. Uh, it is their home ice. So mm-hmm. now you got to go into Tampa and then you got to call out a couple as well. Um, if it would have been in Tampa, I would have said you're, you're good until you lose at home. Uh, but yeah. that doesn't really fly. Uh, they they were the better team. They probably deserved to win it. They should have gone into Tampa one uh, one and then say, okay, we just got we need a split. We need to get one and then we have our home ice back. Um, uh, this is a team with a killer instinct, if you will. They they've won the last two years. They obviously know how to finish out. They were they were the underdogs uh, on paper against Toronto. They're the underdogs again, but. Uh, you, you see the way they play. You see the way they sacrifice themselves, the way they work. Uh, like, like you'd love to see your, your team uh, with that buy-in. Uh, it didn't matter if it was the fourth-line right-winger or it was uh, Stamkos. They, they were eating rubber left, right, and center. And like, like that's how you win. It's that simple. You work harder than the other team. Um, skill being what skill is. Everybody's got skill. But uh, hard work and determination often determines these uh, tight games. Is is that something that's learned, or do you just like have it, or you don't have it? Um, you know, I think about you guys and and you know falling short of Chicago a couple of years in a row, and then getting over that hump. Is it one of those things? Sometimes you you think you're you're working hard enough, you're sacrificing enough, but it, it just seems like Tampa knows more than Florida or Toronto that next level that they have to get to. 
Yeah, obviously they do. Um, in terms of hard work and determination, that stuff, it's contagious. Um, everybody can look deeper than themselves and find it, um, but it rubs off. When, when you see the guy next to you do it, uh, face uh, ringing in pain, it was like, okay, I, I better not flamingo on the next puck. Yeah. And then you do it as well. And then it just, it's the culture we're talking about in Vancouver, winning ways, create the, the, the right atmosphere, the right way of playing. You're seeing it right now. You guys want it put into words. Well, a picture tells a thousand a thousand words when you see how Tampa played yesterday. That, that That's how you're supposed to do it. And winning will, will get you to that point. Because if you're down 6 nothing in uh, Game 70 on a regular season, I might not block that one-time clapper with my hand or, or the tip of my skate because that's going to hurt. Um, but, yeah, that's the difference between winning teams and, and teams that are playing a little bit more for themselves. So, uh, again, it, it's a great lesson for everybody. Obviously, for the Florida Panthers right now, it sucks um, being on the receiving end. Um, they haven't had a lot of playoff success. They haven't had a lot of playoff failure either. Sometimes it, it takes some of that um, just to just to get over that hump. Uh you guys mentioned Toronto. You can't say they haven't had playoff failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but but again, it's 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 great to uh, to see Tampa and and the way they play and the way they buy in. Well, and you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about the postseason because the game changes so much from the regular season to the playoffs, and we oftentimes see players, and oftentimes it's the young guys who play fairly well in the regular season, and all of a sudden in the playoffs they'll play seven, eight minutes, getting healthy scratched, and people will look at it and say, "Well, this guy's so talented, he can score. Why you're healthy scratching him and playing somebody who's clearly not as good of a player?" But how much more important is that team game and the fact that you can't make mistakes? So systems come come into it. Like, how important is that? And how much does that change? And and how big of a lesson is that for young players sometimes who have good regular seasons? Then they show up in the postseason. Next thing you know, they're not playing a lot. Yeah, it, it's the development curve um, you're, you're talking to there, and it is it is a fine line because again, you do want the offense in there. Um, but but there's a reason we've been saying defense win championship for I don't know how many years. It is easier to win two one than it is to go out and win nine to six. Um, so again, that if that's the philosophy you're you're going with, you're going with somebody who's going to chip that puck out um, and then just get it into late in the third, get into overtime, and then get Kucherov, Stamkos, uh, Braden Point, or one of those guys to get you that goal you need in order to win the game. Instead of trying to to say okay we're going to try to win this game six to three or, or six to four and and then see what happens, um, a lot of times you 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 bet on your horses and your horses have gotten you so far um, and and then let's see if we can win or lose the game while those guys are on the ice and then if we're better than the other team great if not well then then we need to make changes um, but again you, you hate. You hate to be beat um, when your fourth line, your third line are on the ice because it's not their job to be scored on. Um, if they chip in, great, uh, but you don't want your top guys having to score three or four goals just to catch up. Um, it's a lot harder on them, not just physically, but but uh, it's mentally exhausting if you go into a hockey game knowing you have to have to produce three or four goals tonight, otherwise we're, we're, we're in trouble. So, um through that mantra, you want to play a tighter, lower-scoring games in order to give your, your your key guys a chance to just score that one or two goals, and, and that's all it's going to take. That's the uh, that's the story Connor McDavid is living right now. <laughs> There's a, I just don't know if Edmonton has enough beyond him right now, and with 
uh, Drysidel hurting and now Nurse is hurting. I, I, I don't know how Edmonton does this because to, to play that defensive style, I know you know their coaches talked about it. I, I don't I don't know if they have it in their DNA to play that defensive style, Yannick. Personal, pure and simple. They don't have a goalie. They haven't had a goalie while he's been there. Um, yeah, Mike Smith is has uh, has his his. Uh, his days in the sun, if you will, but but again, he he's older now. Um, I don't know if I'd rely on him for extended period of time. Again, playoffs, he has some great games, and then he has he has some bad. I think we lost Yannick Hansen. Hopefully, we got him. We we'll get him back. Uh, we'll try and get uh, reconnected with Yannick Hansen, who's uh, joining us, our regular Friday analyst here on uh, on Canuck Central. And this analyst is brought to you by the Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, and Magnuson Ford in Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser River to serve you. We have uh, Yannick Hansen back here on uh, on uh, Canucks Central. Thanks, Yannick. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things. And, and I know with, with Edmonton, um, they need to play better defensively, but the goalie... You can't trust Mike Smith right now. No, and that's what I was just about to lean into here when we got cut off. Um, the, the, the first two of the three goals that goes in is those ones that goes like through. And then you hate these goals that goes in around the arms and, and underneath uh, the old man corners, seven hole, call them whatever you want. The, the leaky goalies, it's, it's deflating. Um, that being said, obviously they still have the offense. And you mentioned, does he have enough help? Well, they finally gotten him help, uh, McDavid up front. Um, uh, Kane has obviously been a great addition to to their forward group. Uh, Hyman does his part as well. So now, when when they come off the ice, there is other guys who can score, who can come on and and take some minutes away from those guys. But but again, the most important uh, position uh, on a hockey team is obviously the goalie. You saw what Odner uh, Jing did for for Dallas against mm-hmm. Calgary in those seven games. It's like you need that. You you have to have it if you want to do anything, um, especially when you have somebody like McDavid who could potentially single-handedly win you every single hockey game. Um, if he's getting goaltending like Dallas was, he, he'd score you that one or two goals that you needed. It, it, it's that simple. But when he has to go out and score two, three, four points a, a night, it's it's just not uh, it's just not tenable. Uh, you you'd hate to. Uh, put him in that position uh so so again it's uh it's frustrating to see uh, as a fan because you you want to see these guys uh do well uh you want to see them far in the playoffs um you hate to see them getting uh, getting booted out because uh, this is when it matters most this is when the most pressure is on this is when you want to see the the stars rise to the occasion and you can't say that he haven't done it mm-hmm. um but but he needs uh, he needs some support we wanted to turn uh, the discussion towards the Canucks here for a few moments because uh, Bruce Boudreaux was on a podcast today and he mentioned that Scott Walker, assistant coach, will not be back and he's going back home to retire and, and work with the Guelph Storm and do other things uh, from this point on. And we'll get into assistant coaches and stuff like that in a second. But one thing he kind of also kind of alluded to in that discussion was how much he changed the systems entirely when he came in. Offensively, he said, you know, they were far more aggressive on the forecheck, which we saw. He said they played a 1-1-3 through the neutral zone. And then he talked about the defensive zone. And he said they changed everything about how they played defensively. And he went as far as saying when the players told him that what they were doing defensively 
that his reaction was, oh, wow, we're not doing that again. I mean, what what big things did you kind of notice about how the Canucks played defensively after the changes were made? Yeah, that, that again, that that's tough uh, in terms of, of pointing out this is what they're like. I, I mentioned the forechecking. That's something that's very easily to stand out. It, it might be there whether they switch to a more zone or man on man or, or something like that. Like, again, I, I don't. I watched the games, but I don't watch it that closely that I could say they, they changed their, their whole philosophy and now the Ds are, are relying, uh, leaving the front of the net, uh, chasing out or behind the net and all these things. So it, it's very hard to, uh, to say what they changed specifically in terms of their systems. Um, uh, so for, for me to, to put that into words, I, I, I simply can't, not here on the spot. Um, like I said, the forechecking was easy to see because all of a sudden it was go, go, go time where they had been a lot more tentative uh, on that aspect. But but defensive zone, I, I can't put into words what they, what they changed specifically. Well, and, you know, one of the things he mentioned was that they tried to really take away the center of the ice defensively and they were they were better at doing so. And you know, just as far as how this team has success, one thing you kind of mentioned as far as defensively goes, and this is something Rutherford and Alvin talked about, they wanted to have more controlled exits out of the zone with it with moving the puck and one of the things Boudreaux said in the interview was well it's the good teams that are good at doing those things look at the teams in the playoffs they have good players that's how you get better at doing those things do you subscribe to that or do you think there are ways to have more controlled controlled exits out of your defensive zone no because you need you need the defenseman who can do it uh <laughs> the glass out i like i hate to get a grenade in the back of my head and here you go 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 Yannick, go chase this one down uh, you, you'd like to get the tape-to-tape pass and then move it into the center who's swinging through the middle and it's glide, glide, and you're off to the offense. Um, it's personal. They, they have they have a couple of guys who will do that. Um, uh, but again, in order to be consistent, you, you'd prefer to have six guys who buys into this. Yeah, you got to be able to, to uh, toss it off the glass when you're in trouble and, and eat an icing or uh, when, when there's trouble and stuff like that. But you want to have the puck on your stick. Uh, the way that the, the games are called now is like you play with the puck, you're going to get scoring chances, you're going to create um, penalties. It, it's that simple. So so you don't want to give it back once you have it. Um, so yeah, I'd love for, for, for them to find defensemen who will uh, uh, like reverse the play, shake it forward, and, and then hit it up on the half wall or a center who's swinging through low. Um, but again, it, it is, it's personal, pure and simple. Uh, the good teams, they have these guys in, in spades who does that. Um, and everybody is, is trying to catch up. You know, we, uh, there's been a lot of talk about analytics. There's a thought that the new front office wants to integrate it more into the way the Canucks do things um, on and off the ice and how they identify players in, in a lot of different ways. Um, from a player's perspective, like, does that, creep in at all we know Gillis obviously uh, did a lot of different things when he was uh, the GM of the Vancouver Canucks like does that creep down to the dressing room or is it just like uh, Alan Vino tells us what to do and we do it uh, 100% it creeps in um, when was it Corsi is it Corsi it's called that thing yeah. when uh, that measures when that thing got introduced you saw a significant change and also in like talk in the dressing room like Certain certain times you'd see guys put pucks on the net 
just for the sake of getting an, an, another tick on that, you know, you come off, there'd be a stat line and like, yeah, okay, I threw another puck on net. It's a plus for me and uh, so and so. And, and all it is, it, it's an analytic stat mm-hmm. and it doesn't take into account whether or not this is a breakaway, whether or not this is a backdoor one-timer or it's a floater from the far blue line or in the neutral zone that hits the net. It doesn't care about that. All it cares about is the puck is hitting the net. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a plus on that. So it's one of those things where you saw a lot of guys always all of a sudden um, shooting the puck on net just just to get a, a plus on the Corsi instead of okay, I'm going to put this in the corner and I'm going to go forecheck because that that's probably more useful than than giving it to to the goalie who's just going to play it or, or freeze it. And I do think. As far as coaching goes, isn't it better? I mean, as far as applying those stats go, because I mean, one of the things Boudreaux talked about was, yeah, there are some stats that are good and you don't want to give players too much information because then you get distracted. And if you're watching the iPad too much on the bench, maybe you mix up when you're supposed to be on the ice. That could release too many men penalties and just overall distraction and stuff like that. So when a coach was discussing things with you, was it better when they just kind of talked about what you had to do as opposed to showing you stats? Or is it important to see numbers when they try to explain things for you to do? I was very rarely shown numbers. Yeah. The only thing uh, that, that really was, like, we had these um, these sheets that came in after games, and they had the scoring chances, but they were more objective uh, in a sense that it, it was, okay, if I if I hit my center in in, in my own end and he broke, broke it out and tic-tac-toe up the ice, I was part of a scoring chance because I was part of the breakout. Um, but in sense of communication, it was all verbal. Um, and that was how they, they got through it. It wasn't like, hey, see, you're you're standing in the wrong spot. And if you're moving over here, there's a bigger chance of, of so-and-so. No, it was, we want you here, there, and there. And, and that's why. So the, the analytic part has, it really came... It came to a shine later in my career, I'd say. Um, so so the, the stuff we were using, it was when the coaches sat after the game and it was like, okay, check, there's a scoring chance who's who's involved or against who, who's at fault here. And it could be one guy or it could be five guys. And then you'd see it the, the, the next day. But, but it was a lot more... Um, lot more detailed and it had a lot more reason to it i felt like because it, it was okay this was actually a scoring chance even though sometimes they didn't count let's say you miss on a breakaway or they wouldn't give you a scoring chance well it's still freaking is a scoring chance i gotta i i am by myself with the goalie but there are there are nuances to this um and, and they do take it into account so uh, again, I, I was happy that I wasn't uh, plastered with an iPad on the bench all the time. Every time I come out, <laughs> uh, getting hit by pucks on the bench, and I can only imagine. Like it's, uh, it, it seems to me a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get it because they used to pull us off in um, in between periods uh, if there's something specific. PK power play, obviously the power K a lot more, and then they just run it over and they show it to you because it's it's a lot easier to get it through to five guys if you can see the picture and you stop it. So that part of the iPad I get on the bench, but but every time you're coming off now and, and they're looking at their own scoring chances, well, if we had a scoring chances and it came on the on the Jumbotron, play, great, then that's the replay. I don't need to see myself missing it two or three times because like it, it doesn't it doesn't do me any good. Uh, so then then the distraction part I think kicks in for me a little bit. What was your reaction when the sleep doctors came into uh, Vancouver? That was great. That was great. All of a sudden, we got more days off. It was like, maybe, I don't think they liked it in the beginning. It was like, no, they need a rest day here, there, and there, and also here. And he's like, what are you talking about? When I showed up first, we, we had these bike rides, uh, and it was death. Uh, 
it was 45 minutes on these stationary bikes and there's nobody that could do it the, the, the levels and the speed you had to do and you could just feel Roger Takahashi laugh in the back of your head there because like there's no way anybody can do this um, and then it all got toned back and rest and recovery and all these things and obviously people uh, uh, the signs caught up and realizing that hey guys might need a little bit of rest here there um, but but again it, it was uh, it was a different there were different times back then well, no, no doubt. And one of the stories, though, that kind of came out was because you had to wear these bracelets too, right? So sometimes, you know, the guys would be like, "Okay, rookie, you stay, you stay back at the hotel, wear all the bracelets. We're going out." Like, how much does how much how much of that stuff happened? Uh, none of that. Happened. Guys <laughs> wear their own their own bracelets. Um, I don't know if somebody put it on their little kid when they got home, and then all of a sudden they sleep for thirteen hours. Uh, their REM sleep is about ten and a half. Uh, I couldn't say. Um, but but no, they, it was a real thing. We wore those things for for two weeks, um, and then they came back to you and uh, you're you're a great sleeper and you got enough sleep. Uh, this was uh, this was before kids for me, so there was never any issues. I got my uh, my 12 hours of sleep a day uh, with the napping as well, so um, I was always uh, acing that one. Yeah, uh, and you know, Yannick, before we let you go, you, you you mentioned you know the trainers like Roger Takahashi and stuff like that. You, you know, obviously they were let go by the organization, including uh, Sanderson and, and a bunch of others that were there during your time. Uh, what were your thoughts on you know w- the work you guys did together when they were part of the organization when you played? It was great. Like like uh, that, that's that's why I, I get they want to change things and stuff like that. And, and I'm also not worried about it because the guy they, they the guys they bring in are quality too. Um, yeah, Roger was there for uh, since before I got drafted, obviously. But but he had rotating um, trainers in there helping him in the gym. Uh, uh, Johnny Sanderson, he, he he wasn't the head guy when I showed up there, but it's qualities throughout. So it's sad to see good people uh, go that you've uh, have a relationship with and have been a part of for for so many years. Um, uh, so so again, there there are nothing but good things to say. Uh, I never had any any doubts, worries, or, or anything. Uh, when stuff happened to me, uh, serious and, and not, uh, I felt taken care of, and everything I ever needed was was uh, was, was taken care of. So again, um, great great experience when, with everything that comes around, and there have never been any issues. Um, I don't know other teams, but but in San Jose, never any issues either. These guys are, are so professional, and you wouldn't believe that the work they put in. Um, some of these guys sleep uh, sleep in the dressing room sometimes because they don't have time to go home. Uh, they work from yeah midnight, and then they start again at five in the morning. If that, sometimes it's later if we get in late. Like they do all the things for us to make things go go smooth. We show up for a couple hours here and there, and those guys are are there for. 12, 16 hours a day. So they put in the hard work and we reap the glory. Um, so again, it, it's, it's, again, I had a great time with those guys. Yannick, you're the, you're the best. Thanks for your time as always. Uh, we'll talk next week. Have a, have a great long weekend. Sounds good. You guys as well. Uh, there is uh, Yannick Hansen. The best. Uh, so many great insights, uh, even on the numbers and some of the things that uh, they did behind the scenes yeah. uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, really interesting about the scoring chance yeah. stuff. It's like, hey, if you were part of the breakout, which led to a scoring chance, you were also lauded for your yes. efforts, which I, which is a great way of building team spirit. Because it says, hey, you didn't get an assist, but hey, the work you did is recognized, and, and here's the recognition. We recognize, and yeah. we understand how valuable you are. And I, I think that was a really interesting little 
little anecdote he threw in. Uh, Yannick Hansen joins us every Friday on Canuck Central, every Tuesday on The People's Show. Coming up next, Greg Wyshynski will join us to kick off Hour 2, plus the mailbag coming up at 5.30. Get your questions in, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. You are listening to Canucks Central. Hour number two of Canucks Central. If you missed Hour 1, Yannick Hansen joined us. Always a fascinating conversation with Yannick. His take on some of the playoff games and, of course, uh, some thoughts on the Canucks and taking us back and into the dressing room and how the Canucks, especially during the Gillis era, implemented some numbers to try and help the team. And, of course, uh, some fun with the sleep doctor stuff (laughs) as well. Like Every player's got a different perspective on the sleep doctor. We've heard different stories about what they did with the <laughs> bracelets and all those sort of things. Uh, from from uh, my, our conversations with Shane O'Brien, we we figured out that Mason Raymond was usually tasked with uh, wearing the sleep bracelets. <laughs> yeah. You're just going to go home and sleep he, anyways. He, he was the homebody of the yeah. group. So You take him. Are you going to tell sleep. Ryan Kessler to take the extra bracelets? <laughs> <laughs> Good Pro- luck. Probably not. Uh, that's uh, producer Eddie Gregory behind the glass Or today. Kevin Bieksa. Yeah. yeah. Don't think Juice or Kessler will be taking the uh, the oh. bracelets. I wonder if the bracelets had, like, location services on it, too. <laughs> it says here you were at the Roxy rather than sleeping. Oh. I mean, uh, they wouldn't be able to disclose that to the players <laughs> that they knew, but maybe it informed some decisions. Potentially. I mean, what happened with Shane O'Brien? Yep. Not saying. Just saying. saying. Not saying. Just saying. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. Battle of Alberta, game two tonight, 7.30 start. Uh, You'll hear it here on Sportsnet 650. A uh, interesting quote coming out today, Sat, from... Evander Kane, and this should maybe surprise no one, if they're going to go after our top guys, we're going to go after their top guys. Said they did not do a good enough job in that regard in game one. Starting to feel a little uh, vintage Battle of Alberta brewing here uh, between these two clubs after those comments from Evander Kane. A lot of uh, shots being fired all of a sudden. And this is what you want to see. It's fun. You want to hear these type of comments. I would say it's not the worst yep. thing for Evander to do because the Oilers are the underdogs. Yeah, They don't have as much. If you can get under their skin or whatever, or get them off their game or anybody off their game or whatever, I don't think it's the worst thing. I mean, if if the Oilers were in the driver's seat, I'd yeah. be like, what are you doing? Just shut up. Just like, <laughs> just, just leave it. Play you, hockey. Yeah, and, and it's like, I mean, he's been part of a playoff run he was with the Sharks when they made that deep run yep. some years back and he played played 20 playoff games but that's only his third time in the postseason we're not talking about a guy who has a ton of postseason experience so uh, I don't mind what he's doing but he better keep his emotions in check as well and not hurt his team because whether you like Evander Kane or not for Edmonton he's been an integral player for them in the post he's got seven goals in the playoffs yeah Oh, they need that Evander Kane. I thought uh, <laughs> they got under his skin uh, for Game 1. Let's bring in our next guest, Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN, at Wyshynski on Twitter. Uh, thanks for this wish. Um, seems like Evander Kane is trying to uh, 
throw some shots across the bow over at the uh, Calgary Flames, even challenging Milan Lucic a little bit today. Well, you have to remember the genesis of these comments, which is that for the last year, everybody in the entire league has in, had incredible ammunition against the Vanderkins. <laughs> yeah. So, like, he's, he's taken any opportunity he can to try to deliver at least a shot at somebody. So, it, you know, Lucic is uh, on ice acumen. Maybe that's uh, fertile ground for, for a chirp. Uh, so he's just trying to, like, you know, level level the scales a little bit, I think. I don't know. Like, some people thought the uh, Matthew Kachuk, do you need some money chirp was, was offside. Like, I don't know, man. I, that, to me, that's, that's it, it's on the edge, but it's not offside. It's on the edge. I mean, you know, gambling addiction is a real yeah, thing. And, it's and true. It's unfortunate that, uh, that it's been a part of Evander Kane's life. But, I mean, the guy is... You know, previous to that also had some excess and, you know, I, you know, the bankruptcy trial being what it is and the rumors about his contract being canceled in San Jose because of the stuff like that. So, look, I mean, I, the way it, the way it's always been described to me from the, the boys has been like, you know, wives and children are off limits. Right? Yes. Like yeah. and literally anything else is going to be on the table. Well, I mean, and sometimes it's, the, it's, it's small things that triggers guys. I remember in the postseason, there was a story about Alex Burroughs. And one thing he kind of mentioned to Aaron Downey one time was, how's your potato farm? And he just drove Downey nuts because he, he had a potato farm or whatever. It's like, it seemed like innocuous, but it really got under Aaron Downey's skin. Yeah, I feel like we've gotten a nice window into these things through like Quest for the Cup and, yeah. and uh, 24-7 and, and the shows that we've had in like, the last decade to really kind of take us onto the bench and, and, uh, and, and have this through the chirps. Um, I, I think one of my favorite ones came from somebody on the Rangers bench. I want to say maybe it was Keith Yandel. I don't remember if it was or not, but uh, him t- telling somebody, somebody else who had just kind of like come up uh, from the minor leagues that uh, to enjoy hockey fantasy camp was pretty good. It's a fantastic chirp. Yeah. Uh, anything that anything that addresses <laughs> yeah. the temporary nature of someone's stature in the league, I think, is always a good chirp. Greg Wyshynski, our guest. Uh, so uh, last night, the Colorado Avalanche, we were just thinking that they're the juggernaut. They're going to go 16-0 in the playoffs, and uh, the St. Louis Blues had, had other ideas. Was that just an off night for the Avs, or did the Blues find something here? Well, boys, you're talking to the guy who is one of four people at ESPN to have selected the St. Louis Blues to win this series. Ah, uh, oh. yes. I uh, famously... Uh, do not think it's a fluke or an anomaly. I love I it. Famously believes that the Blues are a very tough matchup for this team, and we're one goal away from from this being a two nothing series. And I thought in game two they did some really impressive things to correct the mistakes that they made in game one. When you know, let's be honest, Colorado was skating skating them out of the building and, and was a few posts and crossbars away from really making it a, a joke of a game. Playing the one for uh, four check, I think, and clogging the zone as they did, it slowed them down, the Avalanche. But more than that, it allowed the Blues to offer a lot of puck support on the defensive end. So there weren't, you know, second and third opportunities for the Avalanche like there were in the first game when they would shoot the puck. Like they were really getting there and doing a good job of managing the puck and getting out of the zone. And so, you know. We'll see what Jared Bednar brings to kind of like correct the correction uh, that the Blues had in game two. But I've long said, man, this is a team that knows how to D you up when it needs to. And anyone that saw McKinnon versus O'Reilly last night knows what I'm talking about. They needed to get goaltending. They've been getting it from Bennington. And then this has been the best offensive Blues team 
that they've had in franchise history since the early 1990s. So they could hang offensively against Colorado as well. So I knew it was going to be a tough matchup. I'm not surprised by this. Um, and we'll see where it goes now that's back in St. Louis. Well, and, and honestly, like you, you mentioned some of the things that they did. I mean, the Blues are a really smart hockey team. And one weakness, and I've been like banging this drum for a while, the Colorado Avalanche have, is they're really bad at defending in their own zone. They don't spend a lot of time there, but when they do, it's not great. You really see when the Blues start working them over, they can generate scoring chances, and you can get that defense kind of turned around a little bit. For as good as Makar is, defensively at times, you see some of those issues when he's forced to defend in his own zone. And I'd say Craig Berube and the decisions he's made as well and the adjustments he's made, they've been terrific. I mean... I, I'm really impressed by this Blues team, and I wouldn't be surprised at all that if they do find a way to get through Colorado, they'd be the team that would be the hardest matchup for a team like, say, Tampa Bay. Sure. Well, I mean, I think Calgary's probably right there, too, as far as the depth and the goaltending and all that stuff, too, assuming that they get past Edmonton. But, um, you know, you're absolutely right. And, I mean, if you go back to when they won the Cup, their ability to kind of shake off adversity, make changes, and and get back to their game was always a hallmark of that run. And there's so many guys on this team that are were, were part of that, right? So I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of like confidence and championship pedigree that goes on there too. Um, and you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, the, the big one of the big differences between this game and game one was also the amount of defending that the, the Avalanche had to do in their own zone, which is not what they want to do. Um, and the Blues were smart about it, right? Like they 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 took their opportunities at the right time didn't overcommit on the four check with it, which then gave Colorado numbers the other way. I don't know. I, 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 I thought either the, the wild or the blues, whoever came out of that series was going to have the ability to beat Colorado. I'm not saying it's going to happen, although, you know, I, it's my pick, but, uh, but I, I knew it was going to be a series and I, I certainly knew it wasn't going to be what we saw in game one. I thought it was uh, interesting. Listen to our, listen to our pal, our colleague, uh, Jeff Merrick and, and Elliot Friedman talk about a, um, how how old school coaching is maybe becoming in vogue again? I mean, wh- when did when did we stop joking about the uh, coaching carousel that is the the NHL? But I mean, you, you see guys like Daryl Sutter and Gerard Gallant get Jack Adams uh, nominations. Bruce Boudreaux having a lot of success in Vancouver, coming up just short of the playoffs. Obviously, do, do you see that as well? That there's uh, uh, old school coaching becoming in vogue again. Uh- I mean, it, has it ever not been? I mean, these guys keep getting jobs. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking like, so too. It's not like it's not as if these the 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 old school coaches have you know. It's not like we've got these guys collecting dust on a shelf somewhere. They keep on getting jobs. Um, I don't know. I, I I find it interesting that you know for all of the talk about Daryl Sutter being such an old school coach, um, you know, he in his first full year in, in Calgary, they had three forty goal scorers which I don't think any of us would have really associated with the Daryl Sutter team. Mm-hmm. So I think the real key is, is, you know, can you change with the times? And, you know, that's why the Barry Trotz thing is so interesting. Um, you know, that it, there's been, it's sort of been bandied about, I think today that he's talking to several teams. I, I saw one report saying the price tag could be like $6 million in salary for him. And, you know, I, I think he got really good results playing a certain way with the Islanders. But the bottom line is that that team, uh, in his tenure there, I don't think was better than 21st in goals per game. And is that where the league is? Like, it's changed pretty quickly. You know, you've got to be able to, 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 to score. You've got to be able to play offense in this league now to succeed. And for listen, I love Barry Trotz. I think he's an awesome dude. I think he's a great coach. But for where the league is, you know, are there other alternatives you should be looking at as far as guys that might be able to kind of 
get the offense going versus trying to win every game three to one. Well, and the fascinating part about all this is if you're if you're bringing somebody in too that is more new age, they have to still have an understanding of old school hockey in the postseason. Because for as much as we talk about more goal scoring, and, and, and hey, the other night we saw 15 goals between the Oilers and, and Flames and whatever, so maybe maybe uh, I'm, I'm arguing, arguing against myself here. But <laughs> generally speaking, uh, uh, defensively, the game changes in the postseason. It is more old school, right? It's more about power, not making mistakes, being tight defensively and those sort of things. So if your new age coach doesn't understand to make those adjustments in the postseason without experience, it's tough to do. So I do think you have to kind of be able to adjust and know how different the postseason is as well as a coach. Yeah, but and that's also contingent on your players too. I mean, like, that's one of the reasons why the Lightning are the Lightning is that they have the ability to play a track meet game against somebody. They have the ability to win a game 7 one nothing, like they did mm-hmm. against the Islanders last year. Like, they have this incredible acumen to play however the situation calls for it, right? So, like, what we saw in the Leaf series – um, may not necessarily be what we see in the Panthers series, but in both cases, they're successful. And I mean, you know, the Panthers are a good example of what not to do, right? Like, you know, they ran into a, a, an okay defensive team in Washington that beat them up and, and that they couldn't figure it out for a lot of those games. And then against Tampa, I mean, Tampa's basically played just a 1-4-1, and the Panthers, you know, can't really seem to get to their game. Now, a lot of that's the power play. Over 25, you know, they, they score a power play goal in either of these first two games, and you get the sense that, this series would be a lot different. Um, but it, it just goes to show you that that adaptability, not only of coaching, but also of players, is, is such a key thing in the playoffs. Greg Wyshynski, our guest. Um, you know, on the coaching aspect, uh, obviously Bruce Boudreau coming back here uh, in Vancouver. He, he spoke on uh, Zoom last week to, to the mass media and talked about, you know, wanting to uh, learn more about analytics. He's going to work with the Canucks uh, uh, head of analytics and, and really start to hammer down on some things beyond the, the high danger scoring chances and, and the obvious ones that, that he looks at. And now uh, the, the last couple of exclusive interviews he's done, he's, he's kind of been a little bit colder on that front. It, how much do, like in your experience, Greg, um, how, how much are coaches into some new age, deeper analytical type of numbers? I think there, there are some that, and keep in mind that the puck and player tracking thing has really been the revolutionary bit of this, right? Yes. Like, I think the fact that they've got these tablets on the bench, um, there are certain things that coaches are going to really keep track of and, and really kind of monitor, um, such as ice time, such as, um, you know, who's winning faceoffs and in what situations and, and, and things of that nature, like finding that information pretty quickly. But from an analytics perspective, like I've, I, listen, I think, I think more data, more better for everybody, right? Including coaches. But when I think of like analytics and, and the impact on, on the game, I, I definitely think it's more of a front office thing than I do a coaching mm-hmm. thing. Like I definitely think that that yeah. is something where if you look at Colorado, for example, you know, they've been able to find players time and again, Tampa as well, that, that really fit their system and that really know how to play the way they play. Um, and that's speaking probably directly to the numbers that they crunch to not only identify players they can fit under their cap, but also players that fit into their system. So to me, when it comes to analytics, it's much more about team building uh, in, in a sense than it is about, you know, predictability on the ice um, for a coach. But, uh, 
but I hope he I hope he gets into it, man. Like the yeah. more data, the better. Well, well, absolutely, it is. I mean, and I think people get confused, and, and you can hear it sometimes when coaches talk about it about the role analytics should play. It's not that you want to go and show all these stats to coaches and players, and be like, hey, look at the stats and do this differently. It's about okay, what does this trend tell us, and how do we prevent this from happening, or how do we enhance what's happening? And that's more of an instructive point of view. So I think for coaches, should it not be more about, okay, you see a stat and you say, okay, we're giving up so many more rush chances that are that end up as high danger chances. Why is this happening and how do we address it? As as opposed to just look at the stat and and just show it to your players and say, do this better. I think that's kind of the bridge sometimes that you have to gap. That gap, you got to bridge with a lot right. of younger guys with these older coaches. Yeah, for sure. Um, you're absolutely right. But you also have to remember the thing about coaches, too, is that, you know, these guys get hired, and we just chronicled a number of them. They get hired because of their, their gut, right? Like it, yeah. They get hired because of, of, of the way that they manage a game and, and trusting their instincts and, and relying on their decades of, of experience. And, and that, in, in some cases, I think they think it's, it, it should trump any kind of number crunching. So, you know, when it comes to analytics, I, I – I do think like you do that there's been hesitancy in some cases. And I think that's probably why it's like, they don't want like a robot taking their job one day. (laughs) (laughs) They want to be able to keep their gig, you know? Uh, Wish always appreciate the time. Uh, Enjoy the games tonight. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, There is Greg Wyshynski joining us here on, uh, on Canuck central and Kind of something you've been talking about as this conversation has developed through the course of the show, and we talked a lot about it in the first hour, and Yannick Hansen gave his thoughts on how much that became a part of the dressing room amongst players, how the numbers affected potentially the way the team played and some of the numbers that were shown to players after games. But is it more of a front office thing to help with player identification, uh, talent identification, areas of weakness on your roster, and you know, finding players that can help fill those weaknesses on your roster. I think it's you, you look at analytics for reasons to believe in sustainability for a player. What, what are some indicators that make you feel good about making a bet on a player? Right. Those are the things that you look for. You're not looking to find out about who this player is. It's it's your actual evaluation that tells you what the player is. It's about finding out how sustainable the player is. So what when you what do we oft, oftentimes talk about? Shooting percentage, for instance. So if you have a super high shooting percentage, that means a lot of stuff happening is luck. So how do you evaluate the type of season a guy's having? How do you evaluate whether a seed player it really is onto something or is is having a one year you know, wonder type of season. And those are the types of things analytics help you identify. And I think as far as identifying prospects go, I think that's where the analytics are really important and can be very indicative because you're trying to figure out, okay, which players are performing well above expectation to other players you're trying to draft. And, you know, as far as free agent identification, those sort of things, absolutely. It's more of a front office thing for coaches. To me, it's simply about finding out what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. And then you decide if you need to address it or not and how you go about addressing that. How do we uh, stop these chances from happening or limit those chances? We're giving up too many of them, those sorts of things. Well, let's say, for instance, that you have a certain breakout set up that you think is very successful. And maybe you think it's like 75% successful. Then you look at the numbers, it's actually 50% successful. Why do you think it was more? I don't know, whatever bias, because it happens. We're humans. We We don't get these rates right. 
then you can be like, okay, well, maybe it's not as successful as I thought it is. How do we make it better? Yeah. Those types of things more than anything. And oftentimes, a coach already knows because he's watching it and he can tell. But that's kind of what it's about more than anything. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah, Jeffro, the pool guy, <laughs> uh, on the Dunbar Lumber text line uh, listening live. Can't blame Boudreaux for not wanting a robot to take his job. It's from uh, Jeffro. Could we see robots take over behind the NHL bench? Uh, Listen next Thursday <laughs> on Canuck Central. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll ever see that. I wonder if we ever see, like, player coaches come back, though. They just, like, you know, eliminate the coach. Right. Be like, you know, we have we have overcoaching, and your captain's kind of the coach. So, like, Jason Spezza? <laughs> yeah, and then you have, a, you have a few assistants that help you out with things. Yeah. Joe no, I'm, I mean, in hockey, you need to have, like, you need to run a bench. That, that needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's played hockey understands you kind of need to have somebody running your bench. You need parts of it. And, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the talent on your team is going to determine wins yeah. and losses more than anything else. But um, it's pretty clear, like, a guy like John Cooper, despite all these years as Tampa's coach, still gets more buy-in, arguably, than any other coach in the league. So uh, there, there is an art to it, no doubt. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. Coming up, the mailbag. Your questions for us here on Canuck Central. That's next on Sportsnet 650.